Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and guess what? Paul Rickard's not here. So I feel as though like I'm a kid, the parents have gone away and I can do exactly what I want with my own uh, radio show. And that is fantastic. I'll miss Paul to a small degree, but only to a small degree. The show today, I have Anthony Doyle, who is the cross-asset specialist at Fidelity International. And I always think that Anthony, who's a really insightful guy, deserves a much better title than that. It was worse. They have improved it. But this guy, as you'll find, has a really good handle on what's going on in the world. Uh, And uh, you'll find very interesting because obviously we're going to be talking about the coronavirus and what economic and market implications there could be from this tragedy coming out of China. And then we'll have linking on with coronavirus, uh, Kerry Fellows from Travel Associates. And I want to know what kind of implications have there been from the coronavirus and what is, what is it doing to tourists? In particular, uh, I was told that if you're going via, say, Hong Kong to Europe, you may well be you know, forced into a quarantine situation. I must get an answer to that particular question. And then finally, we'll meet Dr. Ron Weinberger. Ron is the CEO of a company called EM Vision, and they are doing marvellous work. This is an Australian company that's going to create a device that basically can see whether a brain, a skull, has the potential for a stroke and uh, it's going to help a lot of people who potentially could be in various serious situations and a lot of doctors particularly in the regions, will be very happy if this particular uh, creation um, materialises. It is a listed company and it's a company's share price has been heading in the right direction. So I want to know where these guys are up to and what's the potential for the company. Well, my first guest on the program is Anthony Doyle, who is, he's got a silly title, Cross Asset Specialist at a wonderful company called Fidelity International. No one understands what cross-asset is. Really? Or you do, and and people in your industry, but couldn't we come up with a better name for you? Um, Like a Switzer-only name? Yeah. Well, I think a name like, you know, the world's greatest analyst of business, of economic (laughs) and financial opportunities. That's dangerous. That's That's top of the market type stuff. Okay, we'll stick with cross-asset. Yeah. Why should I be questioning the great Fidelity International? Now, we've got you on the program, Anthony, for very good reasons, uh, the coronavirus. Um, and, and so far, uh, Wall Street and the Australian stock market is not reacting negatively. It's kind of surprised me. What do you think? Well, I mean, it's so uncertain. Yeah. So uh, we are doing a lot of work in talking to companies in China. Uh, we obviously have big team based in Hong Kong. We mm. actually have a team based in Shanghai as well. So there's really two scenarios that economists and strategists are playing out at the moment, mm. a benign scenario and a more severe scenario. The more benign scenario is that 
transmissions and, and the number of cases actually start to plateau out and potentially start to reduce by the end of the first quarter. The more severe scenario is that we don't see that and we see a, an acceleration of, of the virus um, cases actually start to pick up. Mm. So under the more benign scenario, uh, many expect that you'll see a, a severe drop in GDP growth in China in the short term that will be made up before the end of the year. Mm. So essentially you're just putting off the demand into um, later quarters. Yep. Under the more severe scenario, well, that potentially has a bigger impact on China growth and in particular the outlook for the global economy as well. So today we haven't changed our views that 2020 the global economy avoids a recession, but we are willing to change those views as we get more significant data on uh, the, the, the outbreak uh, and how it's developing. So you guys are monitoring the deaths and the, and the infections? Uh, well, you get that data very easily online if anyone mm. wants to look at it. Um, but we're talking to companies about yeah. uh, how they perceive the current situation and they would be in the more benign camp as well. Yeah. It's undeniable that the measures taken in terms of extending the China Lunar New Year period, um, the quarantining of, of Wuhan, so example, Wuhan, a population of 11 million people, for example, London, eight and a half million. So mm. it goes to show you the extent. Yeah. Um, and factories are uh, have started to open again, but are operating at between 25 and 50% capacity today. So it's very important that we have that dialogue, obviously, to try and get a true understanding of what is actually going on, as opposed to the echo chamber of, of Twitter, which I know you know well, sweet, uh, Peter, <laughs> yes. in terms of um, you know, magnifying and amplifying pot potential, what is really going on. Yeah, the word I've come across uh, is we're suffering from an infodemic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't yeah. yeah, well. All right. Now, um, but, now, Raymond James in the US overnight said that they think this is like a Chernobyl-like um, 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 coverage or, or repair job or non-repair job. Um, the Chinese aren't doing a good job. Um, that's not your interpretation at this point in time? No, no. So uh, I hope you're right. Well, again, so in terms of the analyst views, I mentioned the, the more benign and, and severe scenarios, but we're also seeing the investment community split in terms of uh, the potential reaction in investment markets is like a traditional pandemic type reaction mm. where you see volatility in the first one to three months and then you see uh, the, the economic fundamentals and the company fundamentals actually start to determine the price of an equity uh, much more to a greater extent out the longer term. Mm. That's the first sort of camp. The second camp uh, are the real bears um, that um, may or may not have um, an agenda. They and, usually do bears. They and, uh, do. you know, I think, uh, you know, you, you um, have to really assess the information as it's coming in. And, you know, you have good organisations in there like the World Health Organisation and there's, there's no, uh, for, for all intents and purposes, you know, there's no sort of agenda there. They just yeah. want to obviously de deliver the best outcomes. How much did, say, the S&P 500 fall with SARS? Uh, so I've got 30% in my head, but I'm not quite sure. So the comparisons with SARS, uh, I remember some of the, some of the work that I've been doing. Uh, so they're a little bit different in terms of the SARS death rate was much higher, around about 10%. As a percentage, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. As, a, as opposed to 2.5% for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And uh, additionally, we're at very different points uh, in terms of China's importance in the world. So when SARS occurred in 2003, 
three, four. Uh, we're at the bottom of a bear market. Mm. So we're down uh, almost 40%, for example. Mm. And China was about 4% of global GDP. Mm. Today, it's up around 18%. Mm. Uh, and we're at uh, record 11 year record high mm. um, bull market. Uh, and of course, China, in terms of raw commodity demand, China demands 50% of the world's copper today, um, relative to a minuscule part during SARS. So the comparisons with SARS, we're reaching for those things that we're familiar with in terms of past experiences, mm. but it really isn't a true indication of how this may or may not develop going forward. Uh, mm. I can't remember the, the total peak to trough decline, but not, needless to say, I believe that the decline was made up within three months of yeah. the initial SARS reaction. Yeah, there was a big re re uh, rebound. Uh, okay, so if you're, you're forced to do your best guess, is that guess that we won't see a serious stock market meltdown? Yes, exactly. So at this point in time, given the available information that we have, mm. um, and you know, I, I can't give advice, I'm a financial advisor, no. but we're, we're saying uh, you should remain fully invested mm. uh, at this point in time. Mm. Uh, and we aren't going to see huge ramifications um, that largely the dent in demand that we see in the short term will mm. be picked up in the latter half of the year. Uh, this is one thing I haven't tested, Tony, um, or Anthony, I called you Tony for some inexplicable reason, um, because your first name's Anthony. But um, one thing I've, I've thought through is, we have seemed to have done pretty well during the trade war. And that's because, well, China gave us a lot of business that may well have gone to America because um, they were fighting with America over the trade war. But we are so dependent on China. Are we likely to have a serious economic pullback because China is going into shutdown mode because of the coronavirus? Yeah, definitely. So we've had uh, two... You know, black swans almost, or grey swans if you want to call it, mm. in terms of the bushfire impact yeah. and now the impact as a result of some of the travel bans that we've seen, for example. Mm. So Chinese tourism in, as a percentage of our GDP is about half a percent of GDP, mm. um, total GDP. So it's a significant impact, uh, not only on the tourism sector, but also on our education sector. As we know, Chinese students haven't come to the universities. I know you're, you're um, very linked in with the Union of New South Wales, for yeah. example, so I'm sure you, you fully understand the ramifications of that. Mm. Um, go through Chinatown in, in, in Haymarket, um, and uh, you know my parents live out in Eastwood where you have large, yeah. um, large uh, Chinese communities, mm. and you're seeing the impact on, on retail sales for, the, for those particular sectors as well. So again, it is undeniable that there will be an impact as a result of some of these measures to try and contain the virus, mm. um, but ultimately we do expect a, a swift bounce back like we've seen from other pandemics in the past. But again, that depends upon this virus really starting to, to be contained. Um, have you downgraded the Australian economic growth outlook for 2020? Uh, again, I think, uh, and if you look, listen to what the RBA has been saying in terms of Philip Lowe, that they're willing to look through any sort of detraction from growth that you may see as a result of, say, say the bushfire impact. I think the bushfire impact could potentially have a larger drag on growth than the impact from, from corona or COVID-19, for example. Mm. But that will largely be built up as you start to build the infrastructure again, you know, mm. the roads that were damaged, yeah. the electricity, the infrastructure, um, and importantly, you know, people's homes and things like that. Uh, you've also had a fiscal response from the government, which will help to stimulate aggregate demand as well. So again, 
it's a transitory, more transitory short-term impact before um, growth starts to, to re rebound um, towards the second half. So of if, if, the, if the coronavirus or COVID-19, as you quite professionally call yeah, it... Yeah, they've changed the name. World yeah. Health Organ, they changed the name. And I the think. brewer would be yeah, very happy exactly. about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so if, if it all works out, are you expecting a substantial rebound in economic growth in Australia in the second half of 2020? Look, uh, I think we're in a sort of muddle through type of environment where our growth will be around about trend. Um, I'm not expecting a, a huge sort of reacceleration of growth. Um, you know, well, I prefer to think in trend terms rather than quarter on quarter. Mm. I think that the policy action that the RBA has already done, uh, as, as listeners will know, has been significant in terms of reducing the cash rate from one and a half to uh, three quarters of a percentage point. I think that we've already seen that um, impact, particularly in the housing market in terms of auction clearance rates and house prices. And ultimately, I think monetary policy works. So Australians will begin to feel more confident uh, about the outlook and will actually start to spend again. The big question mark for me is that the RBA wants the unemployment rate at four and a half, Today we're at 5.1% and for me that's the most important number in the Australian economy uh, today and for the foreseeable future. If the unemployment rate starts to move higher, I think the RBA will cut interest rates again. Um, but if it starts to move lower as I expect, particularly given that I think the global backdrop is pretty good, um, then I think they're going to hold, hold, uh, hold fire in terms of reducing interest rates. So your best guess is rate cuts are over? Yes. Exactly, yeah, uh, dependent upon the outlook for the labour market. Yeah, good to see two economists agreeing with each other. <laughs> um, and so um, let's go to the, the next point then is um, you're not expecting a recession in Australia? No, no, not at all. Uh, I think that ultimately uh, Australian household balance sheets are in pretty robust health. I think that Australians just need the confidence to, to actually go out and potentially um, spend a little bit more. But I think that, of course... You have um, our fiscal balance is also in, in very strong health in terms of the, the government budget. And I think that we may potentially see some easing uh, in terms of uh, fiscal spending uh, at the, in the, May, the next May budget um, from the Treasurer, as you've been advocating, mm. um, potentially mm. via tax cuts, but also some, some infrastructure spending as well. So I think, uh, you know, truly uh, Australia is a lucky country uh, and I think that this run of economic growth will continue. Well, Anthony, given the fact that you and I agree on most things, I hope you're totally wrong. <laughs> Thank thanks you. For, thanks for joining us, mate. Thank you, Peter. And that was Anthony Doyle from Fidelity. Now, this is the time when... We have to get a word from our sponsor, and because I am the sponsor, uh, it's a story around a new thing we're doing, and we want you to participate in it. It's a survey called the Fear, Greed, and Hope Survey. It's uh, basically 10 or 12 questions. You can answer them in about two minutes flat. 3,000 people already have um, you know, agreed to answer the questions, and they're very insightful uh, questions. We'll get some fantastic answers from it. Please just go to switzer.com.au slash survey and be a part of this survey, which will ultimately um, uh, see itself in the media right across Australia, and you'll be a part of that survey. Please um, you know, go to our website, switzer.com.au slash survey, and be a part of the survey.
Well, at this time, a lot of people can't help but hear stories about the coronavirus. And if you're a traveller, you might be wondering, what do I need to know? And I know I've actually been told by someone, be careful if you're going to London via Hong Kong, there could be a quarantine issue. Now, the person who told me has no expertise, but I want to go to an expert. And Kerry Fellows from Travel Associates, she's exactly that. So, Kerry, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Essex. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, just tell us what Travel Associates do, Kerry. Um, well, Travel Associates is basically a luxury travel brand. We're part of the Flight Centre Travel Group, so we're like the premium, um, the premium brand of the company. Yep. Um, we've got some amazing consultants. Everyone has lots of experience, um, and we create and design amazing holiday packages for our clients. You unlucky um, person! Like what? I know it's a who, tough who job. Who made you do a rotten <laughs> job like that? <laughs> oh, look, it's an amazing industry, but let me tell you. It's it certainly keeps us on our toes, and yeah. um, the current climate is certainly, um, yeah, an example of that. So, okay. yeah, yeah. Now, now, that person who told me that he's going to London via Hong Kong and that he was worried about a quarantine issue, uh, is he right or is he sort of being caught up in a, in a, in a whole lot of um, um, you know, stories that aren't actually true? Yeah, look, that's news to me. Um, I haven't heard that. We've had clients that are still transiting through Hong Kong. Um, in saying that, um, you know, if you're travelling to mainland China and Hong Kong, there are certain things in place where if you are travelling there, um, most governments are requiring you to be quarantined for 14 days. Mm. But just transiting through the airport, um, no, I haven't heard that. Mm. Um, look, it's still fairly early days and, you know, the, we're, we're continuing to monitor de developments because the situation's constantly evolving and changing. Mm. Um, but as far as I'm aware, no. Yep. Um, you know, so, yeah. Well, I've got to say, the gentleman in question who I didn't know, but he was a fan of my television show, and that's why he came up and introduced himself. He didn't really look like an expert in travel. He just looked like someone who'd been told <laughs> this. Uh, oh. I just wanted to clear that from the outset. So, yeah. so what are you telling your clients about, about the coronavirus? Yeah, look, you know, the safety of our clients is probably the highest priority. Like, we always act in the best interest of our clients in any of these challenging situations. So, you know, for us, if it means that we have to change or postpone a holiday, then that's what we're here to do because our clients are, you know, the main priority. So, it's, I think that in times like this, it's a huge benefit having a trusted travel agent that you that you work with Um that you completely trust to book your entire holiday um, and then we can make alternative suggestions or arrangements. Um, I know that transiting via Hong Kong, like I think Hong Kong Airport has definitely seen a reduction in air traffic control, uh, like air traffic flow, sorry, um, because some airlines have definitely suspended flights or reduced flights until sort of towards the end of March. Um, clients do need to allow additional time, like extra measures that Hong Kong have put in place to protect itself and I know that they're screening all passes all all passengers, sorry, that are departing or transiting through Hong Kong um, and they're undergoing sort of body temperature checks. So just to, you know, there are a lot of things in place yep. to try and minimise um, the spread of the coronavirus. Yeah. Are you finding you've got clients who were initially planning, say, to spend three or four days in Hong Kong on the way to Europe but are now saying, nah, Better not do that. Let's go straight to, to, to London or whatever. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely the case. And that's just what I was saying with regards to, to, to amending and changing things. Um, for example, I was due to be in Hong Kong this weekend, um, but I changed my travel plans because I just thought, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a risk to take going to, you know, going there just at this point in time. Um, but transiting, I think, is a, is a different scenario. Um, so, yeah, definitely people are amending and having to, you know, and having to, to change things slightly. But I have to... To, to be fair, all the airlines, hotels, tour companies, cruise companies have been absolutely amazing in supporting us and helping our clients in having to um, amend, you know, and amend the trip. This is quite a quite a big scale thing, um, but everyone has been really, really, you know, obliging, and it's been and great working with people to try and make sure that, as I said, our clients are looked after. I, I guess yeah, poor old Hong Kong have really gone through the wars in recent times because how did the protests in the streets affect people's attitudes towards going to Hong Kong? Yeah, look, I think it's had a bit of an impact. Um, it's not um, the main um, top destination for, for, for our travel business, but definitely people use it as a stopover en route to Europe. Mm. Um but it definitely impacted with the um, with the riots there last year. They definitely did see a decline in um, in traffic through to Hong Kong, and this on top of it, um, I think, has just been you know like a, a yeah a, a even bigger. So it definitely has impacted poor the, the poor country of China, uh, Hong Kong because you know they're they're going to be suffering. You know there could be businesses that are having to close down hotel occupancy definitely at a very low level. So yeah, that, it impacts a, a lot of um, a lot of businesses. One thing I've been staggered about um, the, the modern age of travel, Kerry, is that a hell of a lot of people have got into cruises. And I know I've got a financial planning client, and he and his wife do about four or five trips a year. And they, and they reckon that they actually save money because what they would spend at the grocery store feeding themselves is actually it's actually cheaper to have three meals on a boat going to Fiji or going to um, uh, you know Asia or whatever it might be. Are, are you finding there are people who are actually travelling prolifically each year, in particular with Absolutely. cruises? Absolutely. Absolutely. A big, um, a, a big amount of our clients love cruising. It's a big part of our business. We've got um, families, we've got couples, retirees. It's really big with the retiree market mm. because they're flexible. They can pick up, you know, a, a good cruise and they, they can go whenever they need to. They don't need to sort of go in school holiday periods. They can avoid that peak period and take advantage of some really good pricing that's out. I mean, who wouldn't? You get to, you get someone to cook for you every day. You don't have to do the housework. It's amazing. So <laughs> it is, it is definitely um, very popular. So what, what are the, the really popular travel destinations for, for cruises, first of all, and then just generally? Um, for cruises, um, I'd have to say Japan, even though they've been impacted a little bit recently with the coronavirus, um, Japan is really popular. Um, it, we're coming into the cherry blossom season, which is um, in early April, and a lot of people love to go there because it's such a lovely time to see, you know, the, the spring in Japan, the cherry blossoms come out, so that's really popular. Um, Scandinavia, Norway and Iceland up in the Northern Hemisphere is really popular. Um, people wanting to go to see the Northern Lights or to see the Midnight Sun, um, Iceland for the volcanoes. Um, there's a lot of different um, types of cruise ships available in that region as well. So you can do a large cruise ship, you can do a luxury smaller boutique cruise ship or even expedition cruising is really popular. So mm. lots of um, people wanting to travel 
to that neck of the woods. Yeah. Historically, young Australians would do the the kangaroo trip, you know, uh, Sydney to London. Um, Is that still a a popular trek for young Australians? I think young Australians um, are probably a bit more well-travelled now. Um, Probably back 20 years ago when I first started in the industry, it was all about going to London, doing the Kentucky tour or doing the Top Deck tour. Whereas now, because people are well-travelled and probably travel with their families as they're growing up, they're looking for new destinations. So Europe is really popular, Eastern Europe. um, Yeah, so they're hitting sort of more Europe. London is still popular. um, And also the the young clients that we have like to go to Europe and they might go to a music festival or a festival mm. and incorporate that as well. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, one last question, Kerry. Um, I, I know I, I actually did a, um, an MC job for a, a travel group um, uh, in Shanghai a few years back and, and, and they, they targeted businesses. And um, I, I, I realised that the, the beauty, like in the age of everyone wanting to buy things online, there's been instances where people thought they were going to Birmingham in the UK, but they actually found that they'd been booked Birmingham in the USA. Um, yes. Yeah. The, 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 the age of the online expert, well, self-appointed expert, um, has created <laughs> a whole lot of problems, which has meant that uh, uh, a lot of people now go back to the professionals like you. I guess you've heard some unbelievable stories but what's probably the 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 biggest advantage of using a professional organization like yours I think um, you're so right. I, I think the internet is great. It's a great research tool for everyone, but I think it has made people think that they know, you know, all there is to know about travel. But having spent, you know, quite a, quite, quite a few years in the travel industry, I still don't know there everything, everything that there is to know, but I do feel like I do have a lot of knowledge. I think my one piece of advice would be to make sure that, you know, with the age of the internet, um, people need to know where their money's going. So do they know the company that they're sending their money to? Is it safe? Are they reputable? Have they been around for a long time? Because if they don't have the experience or knowledge, um, you know, you need, they need to make, to make sure that if anything goes wrong, that the company that they've booked with will look after them and have their best interests at heart. So I think experience really does count when booking travel um, because people say for many years um, to, to, to book or to, to go on the trip of a lifetime. So I think that's really important. And I think at um, Travel Associates, that's what we pride ourselves on, our great service and looking after our clients through the whole process. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, that that's what we pride ourselves on and, and, and it's really important. So it's like um, I think people talk about the retail sector being down um, in Australia and businesses having to close, whereas I'm quite conscious about if I do want to buy something online that I am still using an Australian company to yeah. try and keep, you know, the money in the country. So, yeah, and I think that's the same with travel. There's been a few companies in the last sort of six to 12 months in the travel industry that have um, ceased trading and it has left a lot of people out of pocket. Yeah. Well, the, the thing I remember most of all was uh, we went to uh, Turin or Torino, as the Italians would pronounce it, on a day when we probably shouldn't have gone there. It was the day that Juventus was playing Barcelona in the final of the international champions um, f- final. And, uh, the, of course, they were playing in Barcelona, but the, the whole of uh, Torino was just 
clamoring of Juventus fans in the big square and there was not a room in the city to be had. Now, we had gone through a travel agent, but um, unfortunately, he actually had made a mistake, which is quite rare for this, for this guy. But the fact that we, we turned up and there was absolutely no rooms available in the place that we were supposed to be staying, the fact that the travel agent was known to the hotel meant they put us in the penthouse that night to make up. And I think if I'd booked that and made that mistake, it would have been too bad for me and we would have been catching the train to um, Milan that night rather than staying in Turin. So I think it's always good to have uh, a professional organisation uh, linked to you if something goes wrong. Absolutely, 100%. And I had a recent experience quite similar to yours at Christmas time. I'd been planning a trip for 12 months to take my family over to Europe for a white Christmas Mm. and a bit of a travel agent fail here. But um, we we booked accommodation over the Christmas period for a few nights on an online website. And two days before we left the country, we got a message saying that they'd double booked and we'd booked it 12 months earlier. Oh, God. It was over Christmas and I was like, you're kidding. So we, there was no hotels available. There was nothing. In the end, they found us an alternative. But at the end of the day, the website we went through said, we're just a facilitator. We're just a booking engine. Pretty much wouldn't help us. So never again. And I know that if you ever book through a hotel, like you said, they'll upgrade you. They'll put you anywhere, even if it's a penthouse. So I can 100% sure you I had a similar experience. So, yeah. Okay, Kerry, thanks for joining us. Thanks, my pleasure. Thank you. And that was Kerry Fellows from Travel Associates. Now, I want to alert you to a conference that's coming up on March 3. Uh, it's called the Switzer Microcap Conference. And uh, only this week, I secured both uh, Julia Lee from Berman Invest and Michael McCarthy from CMC Markets to come and do live what we do in our TV show. They're going to be interviewed by me about their best ideas about the microcap um, um, stocks that they think really has enormous potential. So if you want to come along, go to switzerevents.com.au. It's on March 3 at the Fullerton Hotel. There are limited seats, so please get in as soon as you can. Go to switzerevents.com.au. Joining us now is Dr. Ryan Weinberger, who is the CEO of EM Vision. This is a listed company and is engage in the kinds of things most most Australians and most people in the world really hope these guys can kick a goal with. Ron, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Peter. Tell us about EM Vision. So um, EM Vision is a medical technology and device company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got proprietary and unique technology at the University of Queensland and uh, the first product that we're making is uh, point-of-care imaging for stroke and improving diagnosis for stroke. How serious is stroke in Australia? Uh, very, very serious. Uh, it's a $2 billion healthcare problem, not to mention the fact that um, as we live longer, uh, it affects more people uh, as we age and it leaves a long legacy of, um, um, I guess, physical impairments and, and, and challenges as well as very high risk of death after after having a stroke. And we're seeing more and more younger people getting stroke. Is there a reason for that? Is it diet or is it, you know, parents stressing out these poor kids <laughs> from the HSC and <coughs> finals exam? What do, you, what do you think is behind the growth of stroke? 
Um, I think in terms of children and paediatrics, it's not very clear, and I think you know you made a good point there. Um, I think some of it is uh, allegedly lifestyle related. Um, for example, you know, obesity and metabolic disease, mm. and the way that we we behave uh, can have some impact on that. Uh, but I think generally one of the, the the big issues is that here in Australia we're living longer, mm. and one of the studies out of the NHMRC, the question really came out was, are we living better? Mm. Is our quality life imp- improved? So. Uh, I think that as we're living longer, then people are more likely to have diseases or issues that happen later on in life, and stroke is one of those. Okay. Now, I, I want to talk about you know, um, the fact that you are a listed company, but I think a lot of people want to know precisely what it is your product um, endeavours to do that makes it significantly different. Because... The companies that do really well in the stock market have a competitive advantage. So talk to us about what the product is and what the competitive advantage is. Okay, so today the standard of care for imaging in medicine Mm. really is with CT and MRI. And most of us would have experienced or had family members who've experienced being imaged or um, involved in those machines. Mm. Now, and they're usually like the, the big ones. Yeah, they're the super duper ones. You go in yeah, and they, yeah, they say, yeah. like, stay still and all that and sort And the of machines stuff. are clanging away. Oh, That's yeah. the MR. And, and they've got huge, yeah. aren't they? GE and machines and stuff. Exactly. And yeah. you get claustrophobic at times and things like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, that takes about 20 to 40 minutes to actually go through one of those one of those machines. So they're extremely expensive. They're, there's a huge queue. Um, to to actually get in and and be scanned in these devices, and you know you are triaged. So, it's it's fantastic. It's great for diagnosing. It's located in one. It's in one location, usually yeah. in a bowel of a hospital or in your radiology clinic. It's not portable. You have to take the patients there. And a lot of country areas wouldn't even. Ha- oh, absolutely. Ever have an MRI? Exactly. Scan. And yeah, okay. and. Yeah, so, I mean, access to these technologies and, I mean, is, is not universal. Uh, large cities have them, rural areas, as you pointed out, uh, often don't. So um, one of the big trends that's actually occurred uh, over the last decade is really being point-of-care diagnosis for patients. So rather than take the patient to the imaging, bring the imaging to the patient. And ultrasound, um, you know, has been probably the most famous or well understood. Yeah, I mean, you know, pregnancy... All sorts of uh, um, oh, people evaluation, heart problems. Heart problems. Yeah. yeah, my shoulder just recently mm. had it checked out and found it was crooked. Thank you very much. The pain already realised it was. But mm. anyway, <laughs> so um, ultrasound is used universally to point of care. Now, one of the big challenges that exists today is how do I look inside the head? Now, ultrasound won't be able to effectively look inside the head because the sound waves won't get in. So today there are. There, there is a significant issue about point-of-care diagnosis for looking at brain trauma. And the device that we're generating is to overcome that complete absence of diagnostic device by making one that is able to look at injury and pathology in the head and having brought that to the patient. Mm. Uh, patient in the hospital or in an ambulance uh, when someone has a stroke in their home. Mm. So how does it work? <laughs> like when you said... You know, how you look inside someone's head, I said, just yeah. get a person's wife. They always <laughs> know what's going on in our stupid heads. But <laughs> how does your technology get inside the head? Right. So um, what is completely unique is the fact that it uses um, radio frequency or, you know, um, 
electromagnetic radiation. And it's really, it's the sort of thing that we deal with every day. We have wireless, we have our phones, um, and this uses energy uh, of similar but not too indistinct or too different um, frequencies Mm -hmm. that is able to look inside the the head and get an understanding of the electrical properties of the tissue, send that information back and generate a picture of what the brain looks like and one of the things we often refer to make people understand what this is like is when you go through the scanners at an airport they mm. use microwave mm. to be able to have a look at Good point. Um, yeah. um, you know what you're carrying around it's exactly the same type of thing at a different frequency this can actually penetrate into the the the, the brain and evaluate the injuries and the problems that are so actually there. a doctor who had access to this maybe say for example in a regional area would know would be able to determine just how serious the pain inside the head might be for somebody? Well, pain is very much uh, a subjective thing, Mm. but what you would be able to see, for example, if there's a significant bleed, Mm. you know, if someone has fallen down, if there's some sort of internal injury like Mm. bleeding, Mm. uh, stroke is uh, obviously the target that we're chasing at the moment. There are two types of stroke, and one is a bleed and the other one is a blockage. So we want to be able to provide information that is able to distinguish between those two so that that the doctors can make better decisions as to what clinical intervention needs to occur. Okay. So tell us about the clinical trials and what kind of success uh, has happened and what you ultimately want to achieve. Sure. So so the clinical trial that we're in undertaking at the moment is uh, really a, largely a data acquisition trial. It's about taking our device that we've developed in the last year, um, applying it to patients, acquiring information that we then, and data that we then evaluate to improve the algorithms that generate the images that, that, that we have. Mm. So we're going to be looking at 30 patients and acquiring data from those 30 patients, improving our algorithms, improving the imaging, uh, so that we go into our next clinical trial with um, substantial, I guess, data set and pack to know exactly what it is that we're going to do as we move forward into the regulatory environment. Okay. Now, uh, we talked about a year ago, and I think that the, um, the share price was 40 cents then. It's pretty well doubled since then. Yep. Um, does that mean that you're actually out there selling stuff already or people are looking at this and saying, hey, these guys go with the potential? Yeah, well, I think the market opportunity is huge. Um, the, the reality is that we're looking at a device, you know, that would be cost or priced at about that of an ultrasound device. We're looking somewhere, somewhere, and I say very guardedly, uh, around that of a mid-range ultrasound device it would be around $80,000. Yeah. Uh, so we're looking at medical device margins. So when you're looking at stroke as being such a universally um, traumatic and widespread problem, Mm. uh, the opportunity for for the market for these devices is significant, as well as any recurrent revenue, which we would be wanting to benefit from, such as a cap or accessories that go with the device to to help acquire um, uh, greater breadth of of income to the company. So um, one of the things I think that we've been able to achieve is we said we're going to do something and we've executed right throughout the last year in developing a device that is completely new uh, and that we've communicated to the market we were going to do. So you get rewarded for Mm. doing what you say you're going to do. When do you think the whole thing will be ready to go, 
put in boxes, bows on it, going out to <laughs> doctors and the money's rolling in the front door. Well, um, I think this year is all about the clinical trials, refining the device, um, building up a, you know, a data set that allows us to go for regulatory approval in the early stage of 2021. Yep. And we are looking to generate revenue most likely in the second half of 21. Okay. Keep my fingers crossed for you on that one. <laughs> yep. Um, okay. All right. So you also recently been to Chicago for a major conference. Uh, I, I guess you weren't there just for a junket and a tax-deductible holiday. <laughs> it was yeah. very cold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the point of the exercise and what kind of reaction did you get? Um, I think the, the, the point of the exercise, one of the things we really understand already is that from the doctor's perspective, there is something that they need uh, as a solution to what we talked about is to be able to do point-of-care diagnosis yeah. for stroke. But what you want to find out is if you make it, will someone buy it and then can you sell it? Yeah. So RSNA, which is the Radiological Society of North America meeting, is the largest imaging, um, I guess, showcase and exhibition in the world. And there's about 50,000 uh, people there, whether they're scientists or doctors or um, manufacturers of devices. So we were asked by a particular large manufacturer uh, to, to attend uh, this, this meeting. And we were fortunate to be able to speak to some of three of the biggest uh, manufacturers in the imaging space uh, to determine was there an appetite for this technology, but most importantly for the problem. And I think the answer to that universally was yes. Uh, there is a problem uh, and they have a commercial interest in the space and uh, we're happy to continue discussions. Did you pop French champagne that night? No. Um, French champagne is uh, when there is something um, tangible that um, okay. that the company and shareholders can actually see. Mm. But the important thing is that, that, that we knew that there would be interest in a commercial relationship if we achieve the things and the milestones that we, we, we are planning to. Yeah, and do you suspect – and remember, I'm asking the questions that my – listeners yep. would want me to ask. Sure. And, and they'll be thinking, okay, they've gone to America, they've talked to big manufacturers, because mm. all manufacturers in America will be sure. big. Yeah. Um, even when the technology is ready to go, yep. you would obviously be a takeover target as well. I know you, you'd want to independently produce it yourself, but you still would be a take. you're listed, you would be a takeover target. Yeah, look, you know, um, I think it's very hard to look into the minds of some of these companies yeah. because the, the way that they partner and uh, the way that they think about acquisitions is changing all the time. Mm. Um, however, having said that, you know, they can be acquisitive, uh, mm. particularly in spaces that uh, they feel strongly about. Right. Uh, they do want the companies to hit their strides and reduce their risk by having entered the market and being able to see... Uh, a a, I guess, a trajectory to the appropriate revenue. But, uh, yes, the, there is always potential that they might look at the company in that light. Very carefully answered by CEO of a listed company. Well done, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to ask the question. I know yeah, it's hard uh, for you to answer it, but the reality is people think that. And, you know, in many ways there are a lot of high-tech companies out there ultimately do well by themselves, yep. but in the back of the mind of investors as well, this could be a takeover target. And, I guess. and, and also with the board. I mean, mm. the board would be discussing such matters um, mm. as they arise. Mm. So, you know, that's on our radar. Yeah. Now, also, there's the thing called the Australian Stroke Alliance, and you guys are a part of it. What is it, 
and is it important for the the company? Yes. Look, uh, we we're very very fortunate to to have some of the the best clinical support that I've ever worked with, um, and uh, not only at the Princess Alexandra Hospital, but our colleagues as part of the Stroke Alliance. So the Stroke Alliance is 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 led by probably two of the most eminent neurologists in Australia, particularly in the stroke field, uh, Stephen Davies and uh, Jeff Donnan. Um, they operate out of the Royal Melbourne Hospital and, and the Brain uh, Research Institute. And uh, they've put together a consortium of clinicians, paramedics, um, ambulance, fl Royal Flying Doctor Service, uh, in order to be able to improve the, um, the, the clinical management of patients with stroke, mm. particularly up front where stroke initially occurs, yeah. but also through the stroke um, uh, rehabilitation uh, process. And I guess in a perfect world, when you guys are ready to go and the product's ready, you'd be hoping that all those people in the front line dealing with strokes like paramedics and doctors and have access to a machine like yours so they, they know what's going on and, and, and they treat the person right as a consequence of it. No, absolutely. And, and that's the mm. intent of the consortium. But I think for us uh, specifically, um, if we're just looking at this from a shareholder and, and the corporate perspective, aside from the tremendous support that we have had from, from Jeff and Steve and the awareness that they have about the potential value that we can generate, uh, we've been part of this uh, medical Research Future Fund grant that they put in as part of this Stroke Alliance where uh, we've been shortlisted down to about, I think it is exactly 10 uh, candidates, which will, at the end of which, a percentage of those will be funded to the tune of tens of millions of dollars in order to be able to, to pursue their goals. And in our case, it's that point of care treatment and, and diagnosis of mm. patients at uh, you know the home, particularly for paramedics. Yeah, isn't it funny? You know, um, being of a, a doctor, yeah. uh, you're talking about the the medical dividend as an economics guy. I'm thinking these guys would be export heroes if you pulled <laughs> this off as well. But it's win-win, isn't it? Yeah. Look, I I think anything that is a successful technology which, by the way, we're a homegrown Australian technology. Mm. Um, and I think it's important in the present economic climate to, to realise that we will certainly be a manufacturer here mm. and therefore an exporter. Um, and that is coming back to the country. But, um, you know, if we're successful, there'll be significant health economic benefits to the Australian healthcare community, mm. uh, as well as, uh, you know, reflecting back to us as, as part of a success story um, in places like North America. Yeah. Well, Ron, you couldn't get a more Australian name than Weinberger. <laughs> it's like Switzer. It's like Switzer. Right. It's, it's perfect. First, first generation Australian. Exactly. So much fun. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, mate, and good luck. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks for having me. And that's the show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I've got to say, I did say that I was looking forward to doing a show without Paul Rico, but I kind of missed him. It's was, it was kind of hard work for me. I couldn't really talk to myself and ask myself questions. So in that respect, I did miss Paul Rico, and I look forward to seeing him next week. Uh, and we have a great show for next week. So make sure you join us on The Switzer Show. Tell your friends and family. Let's get those numbers up. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you.